Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Molly Greeley about her second novel, The Heiress. I originally intended to speak with Molly a year ago when her first novel, The Clergyman's Wife, appeared. But some ill-timed home repair forced us to redirect that interview to my blog at the last minute. The two novels are connected, both draw on secondary or tertiary characters from Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, and are linked by the heroine's relationship to the formidable Lady Catherine de Bourgh. The heiress opens by sketching the central problem confronting the heroine, Anne de Bourgh, who relates her own story. I was not always small and sickly. When she was in a remembering mood, my nurse sometimes liked to tell me my own story. It began with the moment she beheld me for the first time still wet from my mother's womb. The infant was robust at birth, she said, as if my origin was just another fairy story. Fat and dimpled as could be, with hair sticking up from her head like soft, dark feathers. Her mother, pleased her work was done, did not even mind, as so many other women must, that it had all been to bring a girl into the world. For Lady Catherine was wise enough to wed Sir Louis de Bourgh, whose estate could pass as easily to a daughter as to a son. She praised her new daughter's nose, the unlikely slope of which already gave her the look of Lady Catherine's own noble relations, and declared that she should be named Anne, after her own elder sister. Baby Anne's father and his steward drank a toast of finest brandy to her health. And now, please join me in welcoming Molly Greeley. Hi, Molly. Thank you for talking with me today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Before we get to the current book, uh, which is releasing in January 2021, Let's talk about The Clergyman's Wife. Uh, it explores the marriage of Charlotte Lucas and Mr. Collins three years after their wedding. What can you tell us about why you decided to write a novel based on Pride and Prejudice and specifically these characters? Um, well, I have loved Pride and Prejudice since I was about probably 10 years old. Um, and I guess when I was younger, I completely agreed with Elizabeth Bennett, um, who thought that her friend Charlotte had made a ridiculously awful mistake when she married Mr. Collins. Um, But as I got older, I started to see Charlotte's choice very, very differently, and I guess a lot more sympathetically. And I really started to get the urge to tell what I saw as her side of the story, um, which is really a story that I feel like might have been probably closer to the lives of many women in Austin's time than, you know, the more fun and fairy tale like life that Elizabeth Bennett ended up living. So what is the central conflict of that novel? I assume that most of our listeners know who Charlotte and Mr. Collins are, but do include a a brief refresher, just in case. Of course, yeah. So for those not familiar with Pride and Prejudice, Charlotte Lucas is the best friend of the main character, Elizabeth Bennet. Um, Charlotte is 27 years old. She has no money. She doesn't have a lot of physical beauty. And she really, I, I think it's kind of one of those things where she feels the world closing in on her. And if she doesn't get married, she's going to end up dependent on her younger brothers for the rest of her life. So she makes the conscious decision to marry Elizabeth's cousin, Mr. Collins, who is just a completely ridiculous man. And, but he is able to offer her financial security and a comfortable home. So um, in the clergyman's wife, the central conflict is, is it starts about three years after their marriage. And it's really just the conflict is between Charlotte's head and her heart. Um, I wanted to explore her choice more fully and what the ramifications of it might have been, whether it really was the right choice for her. And then also 
to think about what might have happened if her heart actually became involved, like if she fell in love with somebody else. So you went from there to Anne Berg, uh, who is a much more shadowy character in Austen's original. What made you want to tell her story? She's another character who has seemed interesting to me for a long time, um, precisely because we really don't know very much about her. She doesn't speak a single line in Pride and Prejudice, and every single thing we know comes about her comes from you know other people's mouths. So we know that you know she's supposedly sickly. Um, her mother says that she's looking forward to marrying her cousin, Mr. Darcy, and you know we know that she is inheriting her father's estate, Rosings Park, which means that she's really, really fortunate compared to most women of the time who you know absolutely were dependent upon men for their financial well-being, and that's what really started to get my mind churning because, um, you know, in The Clergyman's Wife, I was writing about a woman in more typical circumstances for Regency times. And, you know, she felt that she had to marry someone who she neither liked nor respected, you know, just because he offered her security. And I was really kind of in the mood to write a different sort of story after that. Um, Something where the character actually had the means to live out whatever life best suited her. And Anne, because of her fortune and because she actually inherits property, just seemed really, really well poised to do that. It's interesting as I'm listening to you talk because um, one of the things about Charlotte is that she's a very strong character, even though she's under very difficult financial circumstances. And Anne is almost the opposite. I mean, when we first meet her, she develops into a stronger character. Right. Yeah, as far as we know, in Pride and Prejudice, she seems completely weak. Um, And yeah, and I think that was something that was something of a challenge, really, because trying to get her from point A to point B from being, you know, completely passive to actually taking control of her life um, was difficult because all we know of her in Pride and Prejudice is that she you know, sits around and nods and smiles when her mother talks and, you know, is just too weak, too frail to do anything, to even rise and greet people. So, um, yeah, but Charlotte I love because she is such a strong character. She goes out and and takes control of her life. And, you know, even though Elizabeth Bennet doesn't think that she made the right decision, it was fully her own decision um, and her only way of really taking control. For all these reasons, Anne is even more your creation than Charlotte, because Austin gives you so much less to work with. How did you go about creating a past for her? Uh, well, okay, so I, I really started with what we do know. We know, um, you know, we know her mother, who is very, very, uh, what's a nice way to put this? <laughs> um, she, she's a very strong woman who, you know, is, is certain she's right all the time, and doesn't take no for an answer and is used to getting her own way. And she's the daughter of an Earl. So we know that Anne is, um, you know, from noble stock basically. And her father was the owner of this really big estate in Kent. Um, and we know that she's considered sickly. And so while I was researching the clergyman's wife, I actually came across, you know, this stray fact that kind of sparked the concept for the heiress. Um, I found out that laudanum, which is a tincture of opium, was given with a pretty scary regularity to children, like even to babies back in Regency times. And that sent me down this research rabbit hole where I discovered this anonymously written article called, um, I believe it was Confessions of a Young Lady Laudanum Drinker. And it was 
like this, basically a, a letter from this young woman whose doctor had prescribed laudanum for her and it detailed all of the effects of it. And all I could think of was that the effects sounded exactly like the way Amber behaves in Pride and Prejudice. Um, so I knew right away that laudanum would p- play a part in her past, but, you know, beyond that, I tried to stick to the little that we know of her and kind of, you know, build outward from there. Um, because she was so retiring, she wasn't allowed to go anywhere. Uh, it seemed logical to me that she wouldn't have a lot of contact with people outside of her own household and her relatives, and that she might live a lot of her life inside her own head. So that kind of, that that was how I kind of built her character. And then from the past, I mean, we, we know so much of her family tree from Pride and Prejudice that I was able to bring a lot of those characters in and, you know, tried to think about what her relationship with her father might have been like. And um, and a lot of it really had to do with what her mother, Lady Catherine, would have been like as a parent um, and trying to figure that out. That was that was challenging. <laughs> yes. And, and that gets at the, the hint. I mean, she starts out as a robust infant um, and essentially she's made ill by this laudanum, uh, by, you know, the regular dosing. So why was that done? I mean, at the time, what was the idea? And probably with colicky as an infant, um, you know, as so many babies are, she, she cried a lot. It, you know, bothered her mother. Um, and her mother, you know, was not only bothered by it, but also worried that there was something terribly wrong with her. So she called for the doctor and the doctor, you know, basically said, well, here's this you know, they, they had these formulations of laudanum that were specifically targeted for children. You know, they were called um, like soothing syrups or um, calming syrups. And so he gave one of those to her parents or to her nurse to give to her. And that, that basically started her down a path of lifelong addiction where, you know, she, she was given the syrup. And one of the effects of laudanum can be that your appetite is hugely curbed. And a lot of children actually ended up dying back then because they, um, they, they basically just were too lethargic to cry for food and they didn't have as much of an appetite as they should have had. And so some of them just wasted away. And so Anne becomes thinner and more sickly, genuinely sickly because she's not getting the nourishment she needs. Um, and, you know, luckily for her, she doesn't die. But, but it was just one of those insidious things where it started well-meaning, but took her down this, you know, not so great path for a large portion of her life. And how would you describe her as a person during the first third of the novel? I mean, we we know that she is afflicted with this addiction, uh, which is no fault of her own. Um, She seems to have a rich inner life. Um, What else would you, what, what kinds of assets does she have in addition to the obvious financial assets and birth assets and so on? I mean, I think, I think so. She has a lot of feeling for, you know, her fellow creatures, including, you know, humans and also, you know, everything else that lives on the earth. She just kind of feels like she feels kind of interconnectedness um, and with everything around her. And some of that might be the result of the laudanum. It, you know, obviously we can't know whether she would have had that kind of experience if she weren't on drugs. Um, she also, she can be very stubborn when she wants to be. Like, for the most part, she's very passive in the first part of the book. Um, she does a lot of sitting around, and she follows her mother's instructions. 
Um, but, you know, she, when her governess um, appears in the story and and begins to feel more comfortable expressing herself around her. And so I think some of her stubbornness comes out there. She also discovers that she has an aptitude for numbers and math um, that, you know, she never knew about before. Um, and basically that she just has, she has a decent mind. Like she has a mind that works really well. It's just never been given the option, you know, to exercise itself before. So let's talk about the governess and then we'll come back to Anne's parents. Um, why did you decide to introduce her and, and what is her, what is she like as a person? What is her role in terms of her relationship with Anne? She is, I really felt like Anne needed someone who was going to tell her, you know, the unvarnished truth and not just, you know, not basically say that, you know, oh, it's, it's okay that you're, you know, not doing anything with your life because you're so weak. It's okay. Like, so she needed, I felt like she wanted, she needed somebody who was going to come in and actually recognize that Anne had a problem and not only recognize it, but say something. And so she, you know, comes in, she starts to teach Anne, you know, basic stuff because Lady Catherine won't let her learn all of the accomplishments that so many young women needed to learn. Um, and, you know, she's the one who kind of opens Anne's eyes to the beauty of the wider world. She introduces her to poetry. She, um, and yeah, she makes Anne face some of the hard truths about herself, which she doesn't think Anne is really sick. She recognizes, you know, that Anne does have a quick mind and it's being wasted. Um, and although Anne isn't, you know, ready to move forward with her life yet when Ms. Hall tries to make her um, do so, like there are seeds, like Ms. Hall basically plants seeds in Anne's mind um, that just need a little bit of time to grow, you know, to, before she's actually ready to act on them. We've talked a little bit about Lady Catherine. Um, and I don't know if you want to say more about her relationship with Anne, but in addition to that, uh, you got to invent Anne's father because by the time um, the family appears in Pride and Prejudice, he is not uh, on the earth anymore. So what can you tell us about him and how you created him and what he wants for Anne differs a little bit from what Lady Catherine wants. So what is what is his approach? And he, he definitely wants Anne to get off of the laudanum. Um, he, I don't know that he recognizes the actual, that, that the laudanum is making her sick, but he does recognize that his his heir basically is completely incapacitated most of the time. And that's, you know, not good for Rosings Park. Um, and it's not good for his daughter. And so when she's, um, you know, an older, you know, not quite a teenager, but an older child, he actually, you know, usually he just kind of says yes to whatever Lady Catherine wants because she's such a force of nature. But, you know, in this one instance, he says that he, wants to take Anne to the seaside to try sea bathing, which, you know, back then was supposed to be like the cure-all <laughs> for everything. And um, he has her dunked in the sea and won't let her take laudanum. And, you know, it, it's really the one time that he, that he tries to help her and it doesn't end up working. Um, but, and, but, you know, most of the time he kind of isn't around. He, he's either out on the estate or he escapes to London to get away from his, wife and, you know, not to have to face his daughter's weakness. Um, so he has his own weakness in that sense where he, he just is not the father that she really needs, although he does try that one time. Um, but he, in my head, you know, I, I had a hard time coming up with who he would be because he's married to Lady Catherine and she, like I said, is just such a force of nature. It was like hard to wrap my head around 
what sort of man could be a match for her. And I came very close to making him almost like Mr. Collins-esque, like very, very meek and subservient. Um, but I felt like because he you know, has this estate to run, um, it just seems natural to me that he would have some, you know, strength of character at least in order to efficiently, you know, do his duty by the estate. Um, so I think, you know, he cares for Anne, but it's in this distant kind of way. And I think, you know, like so many other people, despite, you know, his best intentions, he let Lady Catherine, you know, have the last day when he really would have done better to keep trying and keep, you know, going to other doctors and trying to get second opinions. Um, that would have served Anne a lot better than just him running away to London, as he so often does. I'm laughing as I think about that bathing scene because I grew up in the UK and, you know, going into the sea uh, is not like going into the sea in Florida. I mean, it's really cold. Right. <laughs> it is so cold. It's, it's one of those things where I think about people doing that voluntarily on like a regular basis. And it's just, I guess it would be bracing. I guess it would. Yeah, I mean, it certainly was even when we were kids. But um, so... <laughs> Although we don't want to go too far into your book, um, if Anne were to remain addicted to laudanum, there wouldn't really be much character development, and therefore there would be no story. So set up uh, what kinds of things she begins to do to um, free herself from this past. To free herself, I mean, really, she basically, ha- she's, con- she's confronted with um, kind of this this news story that talks about a child who died of laudanum overdose and it makes this is years after Miss Hall started talking to her about her, you know, thinking that Anne needed to get off of laudanum. And it's just one of those moments that changes everything for her where she like, just for whatever reason, this story snaps her into the understanding that, um, that she needs to change her life or, you know, she will be trapped possibly unto death by her medicine. Um, so really she just does it. She hurt. She takes advantage of the fact that her mother is gone one day and she dumps out her medicine and she takes off for London where she has a cousin, um, Colonel Fitzwilliam, who has offered, you know, to let her stay with him whenever she wants. And so she just does that. Um, and you know, it's not, of course it's not easy. She has to withdraw from the drug. And then once that has happened, she has to convince herself that she is actually strong enough to face the world, which she has been told her entire life that she's not. Um, but she starts strong by just, just dumping everything out and literally just taking up off, you know, for the horizon that she's never been allowed to go toward before. Yeah, she doesn't, I mean, there's no equivalent of methadone. I mean, she just, she really goes cold turkey. She just, she goes into yeah. <laughs> a really very serious, severe reaction. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, Luckily, I mean, not luckily because those meant people went through this, but there there are a lot of first person accounts of what withdrawing from laudanum was like. And yeah, they were not, it was not a fun experience. <laughs> um, and again, it was the reason why so many people also went back onto it. It was just, or didn't, or didn't get off of it in the first place. It was a miserable experience to get off of it. But um, yeah, and there was nothing to do except go through it <laughs> at that point. So who is Mr. Waters? Mr. Waters is, so Anne's cousin, Colonel Fitzwilliam, is married to Mr. Waters' sister. And Mr. Waters is staying with them at the same time that Anne comes to London. Um, and he is 
kind you know he's kind of an enigma at first, but then you know he become he makes it clear that he is interested in Anne as a potential spouse. Um, so he he becomes a suitor of Anne's, but uh, you know Mr. Waters it turns out has his own secrets and um, that you know he could he could make Anne a very decent husband. Um, it's just one of those things that she has to decide whether that's what she wants from her life. The traditional marriage. And she makes friends, um, the sisters Julia and Eliza Amherst. Uh, tell us a bit about them. Um, Julia and Eliza are the first people outside of her husband, her cousin's household um, that Anne actually meets in London. They're friends from uh, um, from school of Mrs. Fitzwilliam, her cousin's wife, and you know they are just welcoming, and especially Eliza. I mean, Julia is always kind of on the periphery, but Eliza is the one with whom Anne actually becomes really close and forms a deep friendship. And, you know, they, um, I think from the beginning, I think they're kind of drawn to each other because they almost, they recognize that, you know, that they're both in different ways unconventional and that kind of intrigue. They're intrigued by each other, you know, from their very first meeting. Tell us a little bit about Eliza as a personality. She's quite different from Anne in some ways. She is very different from Anne. She is, Anne is very quiet and Eliza is very loud. Um, Eliza laughs a lot, um, but she's also, she loves to read. She, she's kind of a, she's a deep thinker, although I think on the surface it might not look like she is to people. Um, she loves all of the, you know, she, she loves the trappings of femininity, you know, of the time. She loves, you know, the, the bonnets and the clothes and all of that. But at the same time, she kind of chafes against the, the fact that they're insisted upon and that they're, you know, turning her into sort of like a doll for men to admire. And, um, but yeah, compared to Anne, she is much more outgoing and, um, you know, capable of, think, of saying what she thinks in company than Anne is, which I think is one of the things that Anne really kind of it draws into her. So because I don't want to give away spoilers, um, I want to ask you if there's anything or anyone else that you would like to share with readers either about either of the books, actually, um, characters you particularly like or incidents that you would like to share or um, anything think it's, uh, that seems important to you. Oh goodness. Um, well, I guess you know it's. It, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that there is definitely an LGBTQ angle to the heiress, and um, that that's something that you know was not just talked about in the same way that it is now. Um, it was not understood the same way that it is now. But you know, people of you know there are still same sex relationships, and you know have been from the beginning of time, and it was something that I kind of wanted to explore because um, it's so often not talked about in, you know, Austin spinoffs, you know, the, any of the people who were not the traditional um, con- conventional, you know, people who, you know, married, you know, had basically the Charlotte, you know, the Charlotte Lucases of the world who, who lived a very conventional life and whose story I adore but hers, hers is the story that's usually told. And so I was interested in telling um, someone else's story as well. What would you like readers to take away from the heiress? I guess 
that what I would most like people to take away is the idea that, um, that everyone has a story because in Pride and Prejudice, Anne is really an extremely minor character, but all of the people around her in the book, you know, are very dismissive of her in their own way. Um, Elizabeth Bennet, you know, sees that Anne is, you know, kind of rude and um, thinks that her frailty is kind of ridiculous and just dismisses her from her mind. And even Lady Catherine is dismissive in her own way because she is always saying, you know, Anne can't do anything. Um, And I, I think that I just would like it to be a story where people realize that, you know, everybody, no matter how quiet or how, um, how e- you know, seemingly easily dismissed that everybody has an inner life, really, and deserves their own story. That was one of the things I really enjoyed about both the books. I mean, Pride and Prejudice is so focused, uh, not even just on the Bennets, but specifically Eliza and Jane. And yet there were all these other fascinating characters, because this is the thing about Austen. I mean, she is one of the few writers who can just nail a character in two sentences or less. It's it's always very impressive to yes. me. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Her, her, my, her, I think that's the thing is that, I mean, as much as I, her main characters are fascinating and wonderful and, you know, she fully realizes them, but she gives these like intriguing hints into the other characters' lives and thoughts and um, that just, she, she, yeah, she's brilliant with side characters. And Eliza does appear actually in both of your books, but here she's the secondary character, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, it was it was interesting to, um, yeah, basically to to relegate her to a side role, but you know, still try to keep her herself as much as I could. Hmm. Um, yes. Did you find it challenging or difficult to write her? Um, I think the only real challenge that I had with her was that you know this is I was writing her um, as an older woman, not older, but, you know, older than she was in Pride and Prejudice. She's been married a few years. Um, she has children. And just to see how that, and also being the mistress of this, you know, grand estate, whether that would, you know, whether she was exactly the same person that she used to be. Um, and just trying to think about that. But, yeah, she really does have a, a, only a few short scenes in, um, in both books. But it was fun to introduce her again. Actually, speaking about difficult characters, was it difficult to write Anne? I mean, I find it very hard to write uh, extremely passive characters, and yet you did a very good job. You show her um, responding to things, even though she doesn't take a lot of action. Thank you. Yeah, it was, I think it was, um, well, to be honest, my first draft probably went a little bit too far into her passivity, <laughs> and my my agent, you know, read it and was like, oh, this is lovely, but <laughs> you could cut a little bit of this. And, and so I did, I did find it challenging because especially at the beginning when, when a character is not taking action just to show who they are and what they're all about and make them interesting to the reader um, without them, you know, going out into the world and showing the reader what, you know, what they can do is pretty difficult. Um, but I also, I just was very intrigued. Um, myself by what Anne's interior life would be if she was, you know, stuck at Rosings Park with her mother basically all the time. It, in my head, she she had to be someone who retreated into herself a lot in order to not go crazy. That <laughs> by, would be a know, terrifying being, prospect, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, she's being stuck with Lady Catherine all the time <laughs> and no one else, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, well, that that's... Was, um, it was challenging. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why we have first drafts, right? <laughs> to get all right, that out. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> So this novel uh, will have just come out uh, when we finally put it on the air. Um, are you already working on something new? I am. Um, it, you know, it's, it's the 2020, you know, just like everybody else, it's thrown my schedule for a bit of a loop. But I have been working on um, historical fiction still, but this is not Jane Austen related. It's um, historical fairy tale retelling that I'm pretty excited about. Just, you know, hoping I can get this draft done sooner rather than later. All right. Well, uh, we wish you all success. Thank you so much for spending your time with us, Molly. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Molly Greeley about the clergyman's wife and the heiress. Find out more about her at www.mollygreeley.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at NewBoxHistFic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.